Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In With The Old. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. We are in season three of In With The Old of episode 10 of our CounterPoint series. And tonight we have a discussion about Noah's Ark and some potential disagreements that we have. Uh, but as we get started tonight, I'm glad that you're joining us online. And uh, Dr. Brian, welcome to you as well. How are you doing today, Dr. Brian? I'm doing good, and I'm refreshing the window because I don't know if we're actually live yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't well. want to preempt it this time. I was letting it roll. It is not showing up on YouTube. Uh, we got some people in the chat. Giving it one more second. Let's see if it's live. Uh, yes, we are now live. Okay. Man, All it right. is throwing me off. I apologize for that, but we're going to roll through it. Uh, hey. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited for tonight. The end of season three. Tim, can you believe we've already made it through three seasons? Uh, this time last year, this was just an idea in our minds. We were talking about, uh, should we be even doing this or what would it cover? Uh, and so it's been a, a joy and a pleasure to go through these seasons with you, Dr. Tim. So yeah, I'm excited to cap this off and, and then look ahead a little bit at what's next. Yeah, it's been, it's really been great and it's been uh, re rewarding and enriching just to have the conversations, but also uh, to see people benefit from them and uh, yeah. to be able to talk about things that, that oftentimes there's either just not the space or time to talk about in other environments. And uh, this is, of course, a passion of ours. And, uh, and so again, thank you for everyone who's joining us and, uh, and making this possible and making it so rewarding. Uh, so, Dr. Brian, let's let's just dive into it tonight. We've got a lot to talk about, and the umbrella kind of part in the joke there, the uh, term that we're going to be talking about tonight, or theme at least, is Noah's Ark, and uh, and so Noah's Ark is, of course, uh, a very broad kind of topic. Uh, but really, the heart of our debate tonight is uh, is the meaning of Noah's Ark. And in particular, was the flood described in Genesis 6 through 9 historical? Uh, and if it was historical, what was the extent of it? These are some of the things that we're going to be talking about. And uh, this is a convergence of a lot of things. It's a convergence of studying the Bible and its literary context. It's a convergence of what we see in the historical record. It's a convergence of what we see in the, the scientific record. And so we've got a lot of things to discuss, and, uh, and I'm going to dive in. If you're new and you're just joining us, basically our layout is that one of us goes first laying out a position, the other then responds laying out their own position, and then we interact with each other's position, asking questions and, and maybe trying to bring some clarity or even some challenge if there's some challenge to be brought. And so I'm going to, to go first tonight, uh, and, and here's what I would like to do. As we think about the issue of Noah's Ark, uh, I think what we have to do first is to say the idea of Noah's Ark really is, is not the best way to even frame it, because when we think of Noah's Ark, we oftentimes go back to our, our kind of childhood nostalgic view of animals and clouds and rainbows and, and everyone smiling, uh, when in reality, the story of Genesis 6 through 9 is arguably one of the darkest stories in all of the Bible. Uh, it really is a story of judgment. And so uh, what I want to do is just contextualize it a little bit and then give three important contexts that I think help us to determine the meanings and the reference in 
Genesis 6 through 9. So as we come to Genesis 6, Genesis 1 through 5 sets the stage for the flood. God creates the world perfectly in perfect harmony, Genesis 1. He creates humanity in Genesis 2. He gives them everything that they could need. He gives them dominion over the earth. Uh, and yet what we see in Genesis 3 is a very quick fall into temptation and sin. And so God's purposes and designs are, in a sense, thwarted uh, in Genesis 3. But of course, God is working to redeem immediately, and yet sin is, is kind of like a disease. It infects, it grows. So in Genesis 4, you have Adam and Eve's sin of eating a piece of fruit very quickly becoming a brother killing his brother. You have fatricide in Genesis 4, and then the sin just metastasizes. It continues until by the time you get to Genesis 6, uh, the, the indictments, the statements about sin that we see in Genesis 6 are very broad, where God says of human wickedness that it was widespread. And then there's this very interesting phrase in Genesis 6, 5, and 6, and I'm going to read it. It says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. And that phrase deeply grieved is literally he was grieved to his heart or his heart was grieved. And that's a very vivid picture, and I think it, it, it helps us to situate the context, both in terms of how it's progressed from Genesis 1 to 5, but the first context I want us to consider is the theological context of the flood. In other words, why did it happen, and what does it teach us about God? Now, to begin, we have to understand, it teaches us something about the heart of God. God saw the wickedness of the world, and it says that his heart was grieved. Why? Because by the time we get to Genesis 6, all of the purposes of God, all of the designs of God are working in reverse. Rather than human beings living in harmony with one another, with God and with the world, everything is distorted. The relationship with God has fallen apart. The relationship between fellow man has fallen apart. The relationship with the created world has fallen apart. There's violence, there's bloodshed, and because of that, God's heart was grieved, and therefore, he judges the world and the sin in the world by sending a flood. And so because, as we read in Genesis 6-5, the human heart was completely wicked, a total judgment was also necessary. I'm going to go ahead and read from Genesis 6-12-13, uh, which reiterates this. And I'm reading tonight from the, the CSB, it says this, God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So we see this ubiquity of wickedness. Wickedness is rampant. Wickedness is continually growing. And because of this, God looks at the world, he's grieved, and he says, the judgment must come. So when we think about how widespread wickedness was, that's a theological indication of the need for judgment and, I would argue, the scope of judgment. Because wickedness was total, the judgment had to be total as well. And that's going to become important later. I'll talk about it more in a moment. So the first context is theological. The second context is literary. And this is something that Brian and I have talked about uh, over and over again, because it's, it's really a fundamental principle of biblical interpretation. Anytime we read a text, we have to ask the question, what kind of text am I reading? And, uh, and as I've argued before, I think Genesis 1 through 11 is meant to be taken as historical narrative. 
And there are several reasons for that. I, I can't go through them all, and you can look at some prior episodes that we've talked about Genesis to, to see some more detail. But here's what I think is important. As we think about Genesis 1 through 11, and in particular Genesis 6 that we're discussing tonight, Genesis 6 through 9, you'll notice with me that in Genesis 6 verse 9 it says, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And that, that formula, these are the generations, is known as the Toledot formula. And importantly, when we think about the Toledot formula, that actually goes all the way through the book of Genesis, really from beginning to end. So you see it in Genesis 2, 4. You see it in Genesis 5, 1 through 3. You see it here in Genesis 6, 9. And then you see it the rest of the way through Genesis, all the way through the narrative of the patriarchs. And here's why that's important. I believe the use of that literary formula indicates that the genre we see here in Genesis 6 is the same as the genres we see later, which are very clearly historical narratives that are meant to describe real-life historical events. So I think that's what we have here in Genesis 6, an historical narrative. Um, also, when we think about Genesis 6, we see uh, a list of generations, both before Genesis 6 and Genesis 5, as well as after Genesis 6 and Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So those genealogies indicate that we're supposed to take these as real people in real history. And then also, as we look to uh, the, the text itself, the description of the building of the ark or the description of the days of rain, uh, the description of the animals, these are, are descriptions that we really can't look at them and say, well, these are idiomatic or even symbolic. I argue, and I, I really believe, that these detailed descriptions show that the author wants us to take them serious uh, in terms of actual descriptions of actual events. Uh, so. I think as we're reading this, the genre is historical narrative. Now, here's where we're going to get to the heart of the argument, because what some people like to do is they look at the stories of Genesis and they say, okay, well, even if it's historical narrative, perhaps the flood that's described in these stories merely describes, say, a regional flood. And when we read phrases like, all the earth was covered, or all the mountains were covered, well, maybe that describes a very large regional event but it doesn't describe a worldwide or a global flood. And here's where I, I disagree with that, and here's why. First, because of the reason I said, we have to balance the theological considerations with the literary considerations, and God clearly says that wickedness was widespread. And I don't think, given the statement about God's grief and about the wickedness of the human heart, that that can somehow be limited to the sin of just a few people or even all of the groups of the ancient Near East. I think it's describing the, the condition of the human heart as a whole. And second, whenever we read the phrase that all of the earth is covered, it's true that in certain cases, all of the earth might indicate a particular portion of the earth that the, that the author has in view. And I think Dr. Bryan's going to point out some of those uh, here in a little while. But here's what I say to that. I think God doesn't just say he's going to destroy all the earth. He says, I'm going to destroy everything under heaven. He says, I'm going to destroy everything that has the breath of life in it. And even the idea that the ark includes animals shows that God is trying to, to prevent their total destruction throughout the earth. In other words, let's say that God was trying to simply put the animals on the ark to save them in a regional location. Well, that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be necessary if there were other animals on other parts of the earth that needed to repopulate. Uh, next, when we think about the scope of the flood, 
The descriptions in Genesis 6 through 9 describe 40 days of rain. They describe the the watery depths of the earth bursting forth. In other words, even the physical descriptions that we see of rains and floods in the story itself seem to indicate that that it's global. And then finally, as we look to the story itself, God says that everything on dry land was covered with water. And here's where, when we think of that reference to dry land, this doesn't just speak of a region. In other words, I think that reference to dry land actually goes beyond a description of all of the earth. Why? Because of what we read in Genesis 1, where the dry land refers to the dry land that God brought out of the seas, he brought out of the waters. Uh, And so what we see here in, in Genesis 6 through 9 is really a recreation of everything. And you can't have, just to state the obvious, a recreation of everything unless everything is recreated. So I think that reference to dry land actually pushes against a regional claim because Genesis 1 clearly refers to the creation of the entire world and the dry land coming out of the entire world. So you have first the theological context, second the literary context, and then third, I want to briefly explain the covenantal context and why I also think that points to a global reference as well. When we think about Genesis 9 in particular, at this point, the flood is over. God has remembered Noah. He has saved Noah and everyone on the ark, and now new creation is ready to come forth, and at that point, God makes a covenant. And importantly, God doesn't just make a covenant with Noah and his sons. That might be the the first and maybe even the primary recipient of the grace of God, but the text also says that God made a covenant with the earth itself. And so the covenants that or the covenant that we see in Genesis 9 uh, establishes or we might say reestablishes God's created design and his his intentions for human for human beings both in their relationships with each other we see that in Genesis 9:6 where God says no longer uh, will I allow people to to kill without having just punishment but now on the other side of the flood he says I'm going to require the life of any man who sheds the blood of his brother we can go into that more detail, but again, I just think Genesis 9-6 reestablishes a covenantal expectation between humans under the lordship of God. But also we see this reestablishment of the relationship between human beings and the land. Just as humans are given dominion over the earth in Genesis 1, they're given dominion over the earth again in Genesis 9. But the point here is they're given dominion over all the earth in Genesis 1. And I don't think anyone would argue that that doesn't cover all of the, the globe of earth. Uh, and then also we see the, the reestablishment of relationship between humans and animals. And this, by the way, extends to humans uh, being able to eat meat. We see that in Genesis 9, again, in verses 1 through 4, that talk about humans being given animals to eat. But here's my point. All of those covenantal contexts uh, in Genesis 9 point to global realities. They point to fundamental realities between, again, humans and humans, humans and the earth, humans and animals, that to me, it doesn't make sense would only apply in a regional context or even in a national context referring to the nation of Israel. All of those are fundamental shifts between humanity proper or humanity as a whole and the earth as a whole or nature as a whole or even humanity as a whole. And so the covenantal promises point to fundamental relationships of created order, again, echoing back to Genesis 1. So 
I'm going to summarize it the best I can. When we consider the theological context, the literary context, as well as the covenantal context, I think each of those point to considering the story of the flood as global in scope, uh, as well as foundational in terms of its importance in understanding our role as human beings, as uh, co-regents with God, but as human beings in a fallen world after the flood. So, I believe the flood is literal. I believe it's historical narrative. I believe Noah built an ark. I believe that ark floated on a deluge and an uh, open flood that covered the world, and that God rescued Noah as well as those animals, and on the other side of it, reestablished his covenant with the world. Uh, And we live under that same Noahic covenant that God says, as long as the earth endures, there will be uh, harvest and uh, there will be sowing, there will be harvest, and we enjoy the benefits of the Noahic Covenant today. So, of course, there's a lot more there that I could go into, but that's uh, my basic position, and I'm happy to kick it over to Dr. Brian so that he can explain where he's coming from on the story of Noah's Ark. Dr. Brian, it's all yours. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Well done, as always, and some interesting points, and uh, I was taking notes. We've got some fun stuff to talk about in the Q&A. So uh, I'm going to argue for a few things here tonight, Uh, three primary points, two of which I don't think will be very controversial. One might be controversial. Uh, So first, I'm going to argue that the story of Noah's Ark is chiastic. That is, it's mirrored around a single verse and a single point that God remembered Noah, Genesis 8, 1. And that's going to be key for us to remember as we go through the story. It's this theological point that forms one of the primary elements of the story and drives our narrative forward. Uh, And so I don't disagree, as Tim summarized kind of some of the points and some of the covenant linkages going forward. I think he's quite right with all those. I just want to point that out as well. Second. I believe that this story is more than merely fictional, so I I am not denying the historicity of the flood narrative or of Noah's Ark. Uh, I believe that this story corresponds to reality in the exact same manner as the rest of the stories in Genesis 1, 1 through 11. And then third, and here's maybe interesting one, I think that the flood may very well not be global in scope. And I don't deny Tim's argument, but I think we have a fundamental difference of understanding of what's happening here. So uh, that's third. So you have to kind of wait for that. So let me just quickly go through point one, spend a little bit more time in point two, and then we'll settle down on point three. So just briefly, uh, the the flood is a chiastic narrative. So a chiasm or a chiasmus, which takes its name from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X to us. Uh, it's a literary device where you repeat elements of a story in reverse order. This allows you as the teller of a story to place emphasis either on the outside edges of the story, or in this case, the center of the story. So listeners, if you are following along with us live, you maybe actually want to pause here in a moment, because starting in Genesis 6.10, I would love for you to go see this for yourself, uh, starting in Genesis 6.10 and running through Genesis 9.19, you'll see that each major step of the story is mirrored on the other end. Right? We have Noah and his three sons at the beginning, Noah and his three sons at the end. You have a repeating of the same number of days of the water coming up, the water coming down, and so on and so forth. You can find these parallels all the way until you get to Genesis 8.1. And here in the middle of the flood, in the middle of a world being destroyed by God's wrath, it says, and God remembered Noah and all of the creatures. And that's a key point. 
that highlights in that it is God's forbearance that is going to be operative here. It's not that humanity somehow curtailed God to relent of this disaster. God remembers people, remembers that he is faithful. He is going to push forward and not deal with sin in this way. So polystrophies or chiasms are somewhat common as an ancient literary technique, and this is simply because stories are told out loud, and it's easier to remember a story when you have a clear structure. Also, as a chiasm, because you're repeating elements, you really only have to remember half the story to get the whole story, and that's helpful. So I front this point simply because Tim and I might disagree on some points here, but I don't want us to lose the forest through the trees. Regardless of what I'm going to say in point two or point three, this is something very key to me, that God remembers his covenant promises. He is faithful generation to generation, and that's Mm -hmm. essential to the biblical story. So that's point one out of the way. Moving to point two, I do think the story corresponds to reality in much the same way as the surrounding chapters of Genesis do. That is, it's not purely myth. I don't think we can go to these stories and go, oh, this is just, you know, fanciful. This is Aesop's fable. It's trying to tell us poetic truth, but not literal truth or not truth in history. Now, how do I make an argument for this that would stand to reason? Well, I think there is good reason for us to argue for a historical flood as having occurred. And there's two different ways we could argue for this. First, we could say there's a plurality of flood narratives around the globe, and most especially in the ancient Near East. Just briefly, in Sumeria, we have Eridu, Genesis. Uh, in, Acadia, in the Akkadian story, we have Atrahasis. Uh, from Babylon, we have the Gilgamesh epic. Um, all of these deal with a person or family or humanity being saved through a catastrophic flood that destroys the world. Beyond those, beyond, and these would be the direct peers of the Old Testament, we've got flood myths from, uh, just to name a few, the Choctaw and Inuit of North America, the Inca and Mayans from South America and Mesoamerica, uh, Mesoamerica, and India and China from Asia, to name but a few major cultures that have traditional flood narratives. The key point here is this is a diverse body of cultures that, according to modern anthropology, did not meet in antiquity. That means these are independent stories of a flood. Such a wide range of stories indicates that they are probably remembering something and remembering it within their own cultural context. But I would say that's strong evidence that there was some sort of historical flood that happened to humanity. Now, secondly, so that's kind of an argument from outside the Bible, but We can also look at the details, as Tim pointed out. There are a lot of details provided for us. And I think that maybe can point out that this story has some bearing in reality. Now, Noah's Ark was massive by ancient Near Eastern standards, but it's relatively tame, you might be surprised, compared to some of those other stories I shared. (laughs) Now, estimates uh, about what Noah's Ark would have looked like, what it would have weighed, etc., do vary depending on who you're talking to. But some estimates of the Ark would say it would have displaced 43,000 tons when it was in the water and have a cargo capacity of 15,000 tons. You might be like me. I'm not a mariner. I didn't grow up on the ocean. Uh, (laughs) That means very little. So I went and said, okay, what's a good comparison? Well, for comparison, the planked boats that we know existed in the late third millennia BC displaced 11 tons, not 11,000 tons, 11 tons. Noah's Ark was 43,000 tons. By way of comparison, the Bismarck from World War II, the German battleship, displaced 41,000 tons. Noah's Ark likely displaced more 
uh, water than World War II battleships. It's a massive uh, structure. It's a massive ship, correct? However, the Ark as depicted in Genesis is only one-fifth the size of the cube in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So Gilgamesh also talks about what he builds, and he builds a cube, and it's gigantic, and everyone's looked at and go, that's totally not seaworthy. Whereas Noah's Ark probably was seaworthy, right, as depicted in the book of Genesis. So I'd say both of these would go, all right, we have some basis in history and in reality. Now, having said that, unlike Tim, who takes Genesis 1-11 through as historical narrative, I dislike that term and prefer the term usually proto-history because Genesis 1-11 through is not pure history as we understand it today. Uh, remember that this text, and right, we're going to hold to a mosaic or someone around Moses' time possibly uh, writing it. So that's second millennia, uh, 14th century, you know, some depending on where you date things. Um, the so-called first historian is Herodotus of Halicarnassus. He lived in the 5th century BC. We are long before his time. And even the very early Greek and Roman historians, and I use that with some air quotes, you'll frequently find that they will invent speeches and put them on the lips of historical figures. And these speeches they thought were consistent with the characters. They might have said this during that time, and they would use these speeches to highlight a point. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that when they were talking about history, they didn't have the same perspective as we do today. They weren't afraid to invent things, and they didn't think they were lying, but they thought they were highlighting truth as it was relevant for day-to-day living. So I wouldn't say that people before Herodotus had no interest in history. He's just the first one that kind of comes down to us with recordings of his work. But what I can say is that they seem to have different concepts and understandings of what history was and why it mattered. So what does that mean for Genesis? Well, I take it that Genesis 1-11 through are stories about real history. That is, these events did occur. So I'm not saying that we have no evidence and these are all purely myth, as I have said. But I'm also well aware that all the stories, including that polystrophy, the nicely organized flood narrative, show signs of artistic craft, that these stories have been massaged and pushed into a shape that highlights the central point. We do not have, as I would say, plain or unadulterated accounts of history. They have been filtered for us. This is why I say that the flood is no more or less historical than any other event in this section of Genesis. Uh, and debates about interpreting the section are beyond our scope tonight, but I would put this in the exact same camp as creation, as the garden, as the Tower of Babel, etc. These are based in history. I am going to say there's probably some massaging of the actual historical event to serve the literary purpose of the text. Now, on to the big one. And full disclosure... This is partially a devil's advocate argument, so this is not a position I fully will endorse. I am considering it, and here's the big issue, listeners. Uh, This is a topic that you can go out and see debates on, and they are usually very bad faith debates, uh, attacking people rather than ideas. And so I've not seen a good and positive rebuttal of this position that doesn't instantly uh, begin committing some logical fallacies. So I'm really excited to hear kind of Tim push back on this because I know he is an excellent debater. I know he has very solid understanding of this biblical text. We're kind of in his wheelhouse. Um, and by the same token, he is a, a good debater. I, he's going to deal with the issues. So I just wanted to put that preamble out there a little bit, but I am going to try to defend this view to the best of my ability. So I am not sure if this is going to be my final conclusion, but I do think I can make a strong argument 
that the flood was regional rather than global. Uh, To quote the late Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, we should care only about what the biblical text can sustain, not what tradition says. A lie often repeated does not become tradition, it is still a lie. So, what does the text tell us? Well, the key point under debate is the description of the flood, and it it says a few things. Uh, In 6.13, God will destroy the earth through a flood. 6.17, God will destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. And then 7.19, we see that the waters were over all the mountains, even the tallest mountain, up to a depth of 15 cubits in 7.20. So naturally, you hear that and you go, oh, it's a global flood, right? It's all the earth. It's everything under heaven. It's over the tallest mountains. It's killing all land creatures and all the dry land. We'll come back to that, Tim, in the Q&A, because I think there's an issue there, actually. Um, But this modern reading seems to make sense to us, but has two very critical problems to it. First, it assumes a modern understanding of what the earth actually is. The word we're going to be talking about is the Hebrew word eretz which often means a point or region of land, and nothing more than that. If you were to go back in time somehow and show an ancient Israelite a satellite picture of the earth, do you recognize that they would have no idea what you were showing them? Their conception of what the earth was and what constitutes a flood of the entire earth is not the same as what you and I would assume as a global flood. Not necessarily. That is an assumption, and I don't think it's a good assumption. Similarly, what would the tallest mountain be to someone who's lived most of their life just in Egypt? Again, God is omniscient, and he knows, of course, what the correct answer would be, but he speaks through culture. That culture would only have a very limited understanding of what the tallest mountain would be. And so none of these things, I think, will necessitate us going beyond a regional flood. More on that in a moment. Secondly, a global flood interpretation is going to require numerous, by my count, at least 15 major miraculous events to have occurred that are omitted from the narrative for no apparent reason. I have no problem with miracles. I have no objection to them a priori. Uh, we're part of a faith tradition that believes someone came back from the dead. That's a lot harder miracle than any of the ones on the list. Could God have done them? Yes, but then why aren't any of them discussed? There seems to be no good reason for their omission, and they make it a harder to understand reading when there's a simpler option available. So I'm going to offer an alternative that would solve both of those problems. So hat tip a little bit to Michael Heiser here for some of these points. So first, contextually, none of those descriptions listed uh, by Tim uh, requires this to be a global flood. The combination of the word all plus noun in Hebrew, so all flesh, all the earth, things like that, does not necessarily speak of exhaustive totality. When the noun eretz is used, it appears to specifically limit that all to just all things in that region. So what do I mean? Well, it it means in this flood narrative, if that's true, that it is only talking about the land that Noah is in. All of that land is to be flooded. Now, why would I make this argument? Well, so far in Genesis, we've already seen this use of all land twice. Uh, in Genesis 2.11, the garden is being described, and we see that the it, or the, the Pishon, right, the river, flows around all the land of Havilah. It certainly doesn't mean the entire land of Havilah is underwater, but rather through the breadth of the land of Havilah, the river runs. Same with the Gihon and Cush in 2.13. Genesis 13.9, Abram is looking to Lot, and he says, is not the whole land before you. 
does Moses mean all the earth is now before uh, Lot? Well, most certainly not. Rather, the region they are currently in is before him, and he can see and choose what he wants. I can go on and on. You have 1 Samuel 14, 25, all the land uh, entered the forest, the all there is people. Um, it certainly doesn't mean everyone. It means some of the people. 2 Samuel 18, 8, for the battle there was spread over the whole land or whole earth. Again, it's not talking about battle being extensively joined. It's talking about in that region, there is no region free from combat. So the designation that the flood would cover all the land certainly does not necessitate grammatically a global flood. In fact, it seems actually in the context of Genesis to indicate a region rather than the whole earth. Similarly, the combination of all plus flesh does not always mean every single thing. And in fact, we have some theological problems if it does. Psalm 65 two says, Oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Are we universalists? Are all people saved? If not, then all flesh does not mean all people, but means all of a specific group under discussion. Uh, same with Isaiah 40, verse 5, and we reference this, and it's cited in the New Testament, right? In Luke, all flesh shall see, or all sh- flesh shall be saved. Uh, again, cannot mean everyone unless we're universalists. Jeremiah twenty five thirty one speaks of God entering into judgment with all flesh, but contextually, he's talking about the nations, not Israel. Uh, Joel two twenty eight. My spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Cited in Acts 2, right? Pentecost. It wasn't everyone in Joel chapter 2. It's not everyone at Pentecost either. It's all of a specific group. And there are others as well. So again, this points out that the meaning of all flesh here appears limited or denoted by the context of the story. It does not necessarily mean every single last thing on earth. Lastly, and this is where Tim and... Um, we're going to have some questions on because I agree that the sin of humanity is total and all of it needs to be dealt with. We can't have people escaping the flood. Similarly, the covenants are going to be binding on all humanity and all humanity needs to be dealt with. Humanity has not been dispersed by the time of the flood. This is mentioning is happening specifically at the end of the flood story, Genesis 9, 19. If God's desire is to punish human sin, there is no need for a global flood. Everyone is still in a relatively compact geographical region. The spread of humanity happens after this. Likewise, the nation list in Genesis chapter 10 seems to be operative and frame us to only certain people groups being in view after this. The people being indicated do not add up to what we would say as all the peoples of the earth, but are the peoples of the region at that time framing this to be focused into the specific region. While the term Eretz does appear to be universal within the creation story and be translated as Earth, it's important to know that translations like the NASB begin translated more often as land rather than Earth, starting in Genesis 10, the closest unambiguous text as to what it means. So that's point one. I don't think the text forces us to say this is global. It seems to equally be able to support a regional flood. Similarly, and we'll go to my second objection. This seems to beg incredulity to make it global because it introduces some problems. If the flood is regional, then the ark and its logistics actually make sense. Conversely, a global flood requires numerous unstated miracles to have occurred. Now, how many animals are there in the world? How many vertebrate animals only? Let's say we limit it to that. Could they all fit on the ark? 
Well, I'm not sure about the total number, Tim, because I kept getting higher and higher numbers. But I will say, if we look at just the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, we'll go you know, up into maybe Turkey, down into Egypt, um, we have somewhere around 35,000 individual vertebrate animals. That is a large amount, but that would be able to fit on the ark as described in Genesis for housing the number of animals, the seven clean pairs and, and two unclean pairs, right? Um, however, taking a global requires some interesting things we have to add in. Uh, so hat tip to Gavin Ortland and David Snoke here uh, on the miracles that God would have to have performed for these things to go forward, but aren't mentioned. First, the transportation of animals to the ark from far-reaching continents, America, Australia, Antarctica, etc., for the animal biomes do not match between the continents. So it's not enough to say they could all be wiped out and be repopulated from here, or else you have to have a very high animal population that would not fit. And that's going to go in to point two. Uh, there had to be a miracle about the compression of animals in the ark. The described volume of the ark is not large enough for the millions of animal species plus food, fresh water, etc. for 370 days, which is the length of time they were on the ark. Next, the mirac- there would have to be a miracle feeding the carnivorous animals or else uh, Noah is having to bring on some animals just for the purpose of dying. By the way, my favorite Farside comic uh, is, is the dinosaurs seeing the Ark disappear and going like, oh, shoot, was that today? Anyway, <laughs> that's also why I think we were missing uh, unicorns. The lions ate them. Anyway, back to the miracles that would have to have occurred. Uh, there had to be a miracle of care tanking in. We only have eight people. How many animals could they reasonably take care of day in, day out, plus the tons of dung being produced? You'd have to have a miracle on the survival of the occupants due to the heat production of that many animals in that place, that enclosed of a space. Uh, you'd be killing people with the heat. You'd have to have the miracle of feeding animals on special diets, for example, koalas uh, and any other animals that have very unique dietary restrictions. You'd have to have a creation of water out of nowhere and the destruction of that water afterwards. In local floods, water is being moved right from one place to another, but in a global flood, water is having to be created and then removed at the end of the day. Now, maybe you have that in a canopy theory, so I, that one I, I think we maybe have an answer to, but uh, still want to put that in there. You'd have to have a miracle of non-sinking continents. The weight of that much water should cause massive shifts in the Earth's structure and, and sink the continents, right? But we do not have that there. You have to have the miracle of uh, trees and plants surviving under the water and coming back at the end of 370 days. You have to have freshwater fish surviving in salt water again for almost a year. You have to have the survival of amphibious and tidal pool creatures. Um, or you have to have aquariums on the ark for these creatures to survive. They cannot survive fully in the water. They'd have to have some special accommodations. And then there's the bugs. What do we do with bugs? Are they all surviving off the ship or are they somehow on the ark as well? Do we have terrariums? Do we have termite hills? Do we have ant colonies, et cetera, et cetera? So again, could God have done all these things? Well, absolutely. No problem there. But a big thing is I want to claim for the Bible what the Bible claims for itself. It never seems to indicate that any of these things are happening. And none of them have to happen if the flood is only regional. All of humanity, i.e. all of the sin, can be dealt with. The biomes and biodiversity of the rest of the world do not have to be materially altered by this flood event. So, uh, took me a bit longer to get through my points, Tim, but uh, 
those are my kind of three key points. I think the central element of the story is that God remembers his covenant promises. I think it the story does relate to a real historical event. I think we have very good reasons to argue for that. And third, I think it is quite likely or at least quite possible that the story is only talking about a regional flood. So here I stand, I guess I could do no further. Tim, let's bring you back on in. Uh, yeah. Mary has some good questions. We do. Uh, starting to come in, but uh, we will go back and forth to begin. Tim, uh, since you just heard me talk, I'll give my voice a break. Um, what yeah. are some of the things you want to push back on that view before I ask some questions of yours? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I want to begin with a point of agreement. I, I agree with you in your analysis of the chiasm of the story. I actually think that helps us in terms of understanding why people look at duplicates in the story. And of course, uh, that, that has led some to see multiple authorship or two different stories of the Ark. But actually, and I don't know that you mentioned this, Brian, I can't remember, a chiasm helps us to understand why that's not actually true. Uh, mm. And in some cases, people see a chiasmus or a chiasm where it's not there. But in this case, I think the, the, the analysis holds up to scrutiny. And here's the point. It's one unified story. And at the center of the story is this covenantal language of God remembering the ark, uh, yep. which occurs again in Exodus, right? When God remembers the covenant that he's made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can hear you saying, Tim, I thought there wasn't a covenant to remember. But in any <laughs> case... Uh, uh, I, I think that that's there, and I want to point out that note of disagreement or note of agreement first. Um, when when we think about this, I, I want to grant a point to Brian uh, in terms of saying, yes, it's true that in many cases you have the Hebrew word all plus a noun that doesn't necessarily mean something in totality. So all the earth doesn't always mean the globe, or all the heavens doesn't always mean everything under heaven. It's a little bit like this, Brian. I thought of an English example where we might say, I was outside all day long, but that doesn't mean we're talking about literally outside 24 hours. It's just a, a way that we use the phrase. Um, but as I, as I look at this, I don't think uh, I don't think that I'm fully convinced by that analysis just from a, a grammatical perspective, uh, and here's why. I think the examples that you gave, and there were a lot, I think as we look at them individually, uh, we see that it's more than just uh, all plus a noun. So all the land of Havilah is something you mentioned. So there's another mm -hmm. modifier on the end of all the land that does restrict it to a particular region, all the land of Havilah. Or when uh, Abraham says to Lot, you're looking out and choose from among all the land. It's very obvious contextually that he's talking about the land of Canaan because that's the land that they have been said to travel to. Um, so we, you gave a lot of examples, but as I listen to those and as I've considered those, I think to me the theological bearing of the ubiquity of wickedness actually has to weigh into those grammatical considerations. Um, I, I want to, uh, in other words, because the wickedness was universal in the human heart, I think the punishment has to include all humans. So the most interesting point, Brian, that I'd like to kind of hone in on and, and maybe hash out is a point that you, you made about the possibility that the regional flood, if I'm understanding you correctly, your position is, is that a regional flood could have included all of humanity and therefore been a punishment for all humanity's wickedness because humanity had not been 
dispersed at that point. Uh, you see, you see the occurrences or the description in Genesis ten as coming later, or the end of Genesis nine and in Genesis ten coming later. So, Brian, my question for you is: Do you believe that the flood, even if you believe it was regional, had to have affected all humanity, or do you think that's not necessary? So, good points. Um... I like the 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 comment about we always look for chiasms and they aren't there. That's kind of a joke, right? Biblical studies, like uh, <laughs> when in doubt, just say there's a chiasm in there. But this sure. one, this one seems to be there. Yeah. Um, so your question is uh, hypothetically, I, I, if I think humanity is already all around the all around the globe, would I still be okay with just a regional flood? Correct. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, that that would be one way to put it. Or or to say, do you believe that the story, in order to punish all of humanity, has to include it wherever it is? Or do you think because it's not dispersed, it does? I, I would just like you to explain that yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. No. So that's a good question. Yeah. So there is some debate in the ordering of the chapters, right? When does Genesis 10, when does Genesis 11 take place? Right. Um, because it is the end of Genesis 9 that says from this point they began dispersing. The, I, I think they come after the flood. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I could be argued off that position, I guess. But then that brings up your question. If people are already spread out over the world, what do we have? And it's a good question because I think what you have to have at the very least is you have to have the covenant representative held accountable. Okay. But the problem is who's the covenant representative? Because I think chronologically, right, we're going to say Adam's dead. Um mm -hmm. he doesn't make it to the I, even if we're doing like young earth chronology, right, and everyone's back to back to back to back. He he's gone. Um mm -hmm. and lacking that, I think it does have to be all people cuz it, it is important, right. right? You you need all sin to be accounted for in this punishment. So yeah. if humanity is dispersed all the way around the globe, I would maybe have a, a greater problem with saying that the flood is just regional because um, okay. that seems to be a mismatch. However, going back to a point in the garden, which you don't agree with me, and that's fine, that mm -hmm. there are other people, but that doesn't matter because Adam is the covenant head. Um, we'll go to the example we do agree upon. Christ mm -hmm. can stand as the covenant representative for many people. Uh, and so if we can find a head, that person can either be rewarded or punished, and I think justice is going to be served because people are represented by that individual. So mm -hmm. I'm saying there's a potential way out. I don't see that as a, a valid option, but that would be a potential way to argue for it. But no, yeah. I, I think all humanity needs to be punished, and so that's why uh, I'm more intrigued by this to go, wait, if all humanity is there, I mean, we're talking about massive regions, so listeners don't go like, is he just saying like a flood we see on the five o'clock news? No. I mean, this would be something that covers the entire Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, I mean, this is a flood on unprecedented scale, but it's not the whole globe either. So did that answer your question, Tim? I, that's a really good question. Yeah, really making me think. It, it does. And I think it, it speaks to the need to weigh grammatical considerations with literary considerations, mm -hmm. with theological considerations, right? It, it's not just, oh, well, the grammar necessitates this or the literary genre is this. It's it's all working in concert. Um, so, Brian, uh, here's here's kind of my next question, and I want to pick one up from the Q and A. Uh, when we think about the dispersion of humans, it, do you think it's possible? And this is coming from Jacob. I thought had the same question: Is it possible that animals were not dispersed pre-flood, which would then alleviate the need 
uh, or, or the problem, I guess, that you addressed of or raised from, you know, bringing animals from different continents uh, in, in those kinds of issues. Is it possible that that was also true of animals? I mean, possible, but I don't see why we would conclude that from the text. Um, right. And it, it, it solves one issue by raising another issue. The, the diversity of created animals is a number that cannot be contained within the ark. Um, right. So if they're all present just there and not dispersed, that doesn't really help us. Um, and I don't see anything in the text, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but I don't see anything that would indicate that. Uh, Adam and Eve are working and keeping the garden. The animals are brought to Adam to be named. But mm -hmm. again, we have no time frame of between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think plenty of time has taken place. And let me, if I can, Tim, piggyback off that to, to go somewhere here. So, yeah. uh, Jacob, to answer your question, I don't see any reason why we would think the animals would just be uh, confined to one region. I, I would assume they would be spread out across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, but, Tim, one of your key points is that this story harkens back to Genesis 1. And that is the context. Yes. We have a uh, creation redivius to go all Latin on you, right? Well, creation 2.0, which I right. completely agree. All the hallmarks are there. If you go into the covenant, right? Tim, you are very well aware. Uh, you have all of the Genesis 1 language re-brought up with yes. Noah. It's very important. It's, re it's either making the first covenant or reestablishing a covenant with creation, whichever. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely connected, right? Even if you don't see a covenant in Genesis 1, clearly connected. Here's a question for you, though. How convinced are you that Genesis 1 in the creation story is global in scope as opposed to being focused in on a specific region? Now, obviously, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz. He's talking expansively, right? I think you and I both agree. Creation ek nihilo. We have uh, the creation of all things there. However, we quickly telescope in, and by Genesis 2 are very telescoped in, to one specific region, one specific land, the land of Eden. Mm -hmm. And my question is, the story of the Bible is always selective, redemptive history, right? It is focused mm -hmm. on a, a single narrative. I don't think Genesis from the beginning uh, through to the end is focused on the entire globe because it's not it's unimportant. It's focused on the specific line. You said we know that Abram is talking about specific land to Lot because of the context. Mm -hmm. I would argue the same thing is operative in the flood narrative. We've only been focused on one region. And mm -hmm. why would we expect we've all of a sudden gone global human sin, but if all human sin is still contained in that region, why would we need to? So what would you think of that from like maybe Genesis 2 onward, especially? We're only focused on one region. We don't have the globe or the earth in our modern sense in mind. Yeah. Well, uh, there was an interesting little catch in the question there at the end, because the reference to dry land can't refer to Genesis 2. It has to refer to Genesis 1. And I, because the dry land is mentioned in Genesis one, and I think the but language in Genesis words. one is too, uh, is, is too global to be denied. So for instance, you have the separation of the firmament above from the firmament below the waters mm -hmm. from the waters, the dry land from the sea, and even the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. So the sun, moon, and stars don't only refer to a region. The water doesn't only refer to a region and, uh, and the echoes seem to be to Genesis one. So uh, I would just say I don't read Genesis 1 as regional. Uh, I do think it's, it's intended to be global. Um, and even from Genesis 2 and 3, uh, 
uh, yes, it is true, especially when you think of the garden. The garden does seem to be a specific geographical location, uh, even as as we've talked about before, the possibility that it's a temple. Um, but I, again, I think to me, the echoes go back to Genesis 1. The reference to dry land is a creation reference, and the references in Genesis 1, to me, are pretty clearly global in scope, which is, again, why I think Genesis 9 most naturally is global in scope as well. Well, but to push back on that, so Genesis 1 clearly starts at a cosmic level and then comes right. down. Um, but then that's the question, wait, this flood isn't cosmic, it's global. But the story starts cosmic, then goes global, and then keeps telescoping in. So we certainly have elements that are far beyond uh, just one region and are talking about whole world issues. But my point is it keeps telescoping in. Right. Likewise, right. you mentioned the dry land, and that is actually slightly problematic because they are not the same word. So although mm. our modern translations will translate both as dry land, you have in Genesis 1, uh, Yabasha. But here in Genesis, was it six words mentioned? Uh, you have uh, harava. They're related terms, but they're not identical. The author of Genesis uses both in several occasions. Uh, Yabasha seems to specifically relate, as far as I can tell, to land that is underwater. So this is what Moses says Israel's going to cross over on the Red Sea. It's what they're cross over the Jordan on. Um, or harava seems to have slightly different context. So my point would be, if the author of Genesis wanted to make that connection, he's got the word right there. He picks something else. Uh, and that it's a related word. And my question would kind of be, well, why not make that more explicit? Um, all the elements are there, but we do have something a little bit different. What would you think about that? To that, I'm going to have to say I'm going to have to temporarily punt because that's what I get for <laughs> relying on the English translation instead of picking up my Hebrew Bible. So I'm going to look at this while we're talking and see okay. because there are different there are multiple references to the dry land in Genesis six through nine, and uh, so like for instance in in seven twenty two it says everything on dry land died. So I'm going to double check mm -hmm. and I'm going to check the work on that and see are the references the same because that would be an interesting point. Um, but even so, I think uh, as I read the the importance of Genesis 6 through 9, I agree with what you said earlier, that it is a recreation episode. And so mm -hmm. even the the breaking forth of the 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 deep or, uh, you know, the context of, in one sense, uh, the chaos of pre-creation being unleashed again, but Noah and his family being preserved above it. I think those things are operative, so I'm not putting all of the weight on a single phrase, even if every sure. instance is different. Uh, I think it's a larger contextual issue. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fair. Um, and uh, both of these terms, listeners, are somewhat rare. Uh, I, I think Yabasha occurs like 14 times and Harava only occurs eight times. So these aren't like words <laughs> that are common and everywhere. Um, but it, it is interesting. And so that's part of the reason why I'm asking. The, the connection to creation seems mm -hmm. evident, but the universality of the, the narrative to this point is not to me as evident unless we pre-assume it to be there. Uh, and the genealogies, as you have pointed out, are, I think, operative because there are limited genealogies. We're tracing only specific lines. And so mm -hmm. the focus has continually, to me, been kept on the minor points of the story, uh, or not minor points of the story, sorry, the, the small details of the story, right? We're zoomed in rather than trying to take some global perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so it, 
it strikes me as odd that we come to the flood and then say, okay, now we're global. But then we come back to the Tower of Babel in two chapters and then go global again and then come back to be focused in Abram. Isn't there a much simpler through line of saying we're focused in on one region, humanity is not dispersed through the Tower of Babel, then we let them go across all the globe, then we are going to slowly target in on Abram and once again be on that kind of single uh, line and single region at a time focus. Interesting. So yeah, no. So there are plenty of uh, there are plenty right of local flood proponents that are going to say, as Tim pointed out, right, that there are people outside and not covered in the flood. I would actually have an objection to that form of local flood, um, uh, unless in the comments it was said, well, maybe Noah could be the covenant head, but he can't be because he's not established as the covenant head till the end of the flood. Um, so. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. So I'm going to say people, if people have dispersed, it has to be global. If they aren't, I'm okay with it being regional. Sorry, Tim, just filling time. Go ahead. Go back over to you. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have a, a few questions or a couple of comments and then a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I look at the the problems with the ark itself, I think that there are some, uh, and of course, this is all speculation beyond the biblical text, but the question is essentially, would it have been possible to house the animals, feed the animals, uh, and so there are objections about the ark itself. And uh, and as as I think about those, I think there are a lot of potential answers. One was raised uh, in the Q and A: Could God have placed the animals in hibernation? I actually think that's a, a pretty reasonable solution uh, to the issue of food. Uh, if they were fed really well before the flood and they enter into a, a hibernation, uh, I think that's very possible uh, as a solution. I think it's also possible as we think about the biodiversity that we see today, that the animals that were on the ark uh, were not to the level of species, but perhaps a little bit higher on the order of animals, uh, so that the animals in the ark could have produced the biodiversity that we see today, especially if they had uh, a variety of uh, genetics in the couples that came on the ark as animals. Uh, and the same thing with with things like water filtration systems or air drafts. There are a lot of different theories of the ark that take those things into account. Why? Because those are the, the kind of practical issues that have to be kind of thought through and solved. But I think there's a, a textual answer to that. The focus on the text, as we've said uh, throughout, is highly selective. So uh, mm-hmm. there's some interesting uh, potential answers to that. I really don't get hung up on those personally because I, I just believe that those things can be solved. Uh, I don't even think they have to be miraculous. But here's here's what I—you uh, can respond to that, obviously, Brian, but here's at least part of your argument that I look at and think may not be internally consistent, or maybe you can help me with it. Uh, when we think about the independent nature of many of the flood narratives, uh, we think about that from various civilizations uh, on various continents, right? You have American Indians, you have uh, Incas, you have the Chinese, you have uh, you, you have a lot of different flood stories from really almost every ancient civilization that, that we have on record. Um, and so perhaps you would argue that 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 came from the common descent that humans then dispersed across the world but here's here's my question if that's if that's regional and if it only refers to a regional flood then how do you have the spreading of that story across continents um unless you have some, some kind of theory that uh either human beings were able to go across continents and 
boats or ships or land bridges or whatever. But here's here's where I see the internal con- inconsistency, Brian. I hope this makes sense. Uh, if those independent stories traveled across continents, can we not look at that and say, well, does that or how does that interact with the problem of animals across continents? Because to me, in some ways, those those things are related. Um, I tend to think uh, that when it comes to the flood, if the flood is re- uh, literal, I think the point you brought up is true, that that would have had to have had an impact even at the level of a continental shelf. Uh, and trust me, I don't pretend to know much of anything about plate tectonics. But my point is, uh, when we think about the world before the flood, you have independent flood stories from various continents, uh, which seems to me to raise a host of issues that 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 was a horrible, really, way to make that comprehensive. But do you see what I'm saying at all? And how would you interact with some of those ideas, I guess, Brian? I'm just going to throw that yeah. all on you. That's the way I'm going to debate tonight. There you no, go. That's it's a good question. Um, but uh, to quote you have the exact same issue because uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, so I, I'm not debating the the common approach to local flood theory, which is there's still people all around the world. Right. I, I am. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, from the end of the flood onward, we're in agreement with what the story is, but that means we both have the same problem. How did these stories disseminate because they had to right. come from the exact same set of eight people? Yeah. Um, and, and so I guess my point is, if you think there's a, a challenge there, it's a challenge you will also have to face. Um, now, listeners, if you you came to our, our inerrancy and creation debate, you'll kind of know that I'm open to a lot more time than young earth creationism will allow in Genesis. Um, And so I have no problem saying it's from this event, people spread across the globe from that point. Um, And I like Tim, I'm not a geologist, my brother is, but I'm not going to even pretend to know the first thing about the science there. Um, But I'm going to say there's However, we think the peoples uh, of the world got to their various regions. That's post Tower of Babel. We have migratory patterns in that way. Um, I think that does push us back pretty far in history. Um, mm-hmm. The Younger Dryas, I think, is supposed to be about twenty six thousand years ago, and that was a major flood that supposedly reoriented a lot of things. I'm not saying it's Noah's flood. I'm just saying there's something interesting. Maybe if we go back that far. Um, but the point being is. If this is a global flood, you have the same problem because I don't think the stories developed independently. Um, mm-hmm. So, Tim, in my, in my view, I said uh, according to current anthropological models, but I don't hold to those. I do think we all come from these eight people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the stories traveled as they dispersed. Now, you might ask, well, then why are all the stories localized to their region? Because we like stories to be about us. The Samaritans, when they split from Mm. Israel, rewrote the Pentateuch to have all the locations move up north where they lived. Uh, This is common human reactions, I would say. We we always contextualize stories in in our own local context. So um, I'm sorry if that's a non-answer, but uh, I guess my point would just be, I'll answer it probably the exact same way you do, (laughs) uh, (laughs) with how humanity spread across the globe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess my point in bringing it up is these are, these are difficult things to answer and different difficult questions, uh, even as it's kind of obvious that there needs to be an answer. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, Brian, you argued that the ubiquity of flood stories speaks to one common event. Uh, mm-hmm. That the fact that there are so many independent flood stories seems to indicate that there was some kind of flood that produced them. 
uh, but it's very hard to retrace those steps. It's really basically impossible, uh, sure. which, of course, requires a step of faith. Uh, and Brian, this is interesting. I had someone reach out to me a, a few weeks ago and ask me if I was familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, uh, and as we discussed that, and I said, well, yeah, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh is well known. There are a lot of flood stories. Uh, we were conversing about it. But he was a little bit uh, taken aback because he had read some materials and some scholarly literature that said that the biblical story uh, was was somehow drafted or taken from the Epic of Gilgamesh and was very much influenced by it. Hmm. And uh, as we conversed, here's what I said. I said, it's really hard uh, to determine the direction of reference. Uh, and, and his point was to say, well, the Epic of Gilgamesh or these other stories seem to be older than the Bible. And to that I said, well, it may be older than the written composition of the Bible, but that doesn't mean the origin of the story itself is actually older. Why? Because these stories ex existed in oral form well before that. Uh, it's very difficult to determine influence one way or the other. Um, and that's that's true not just in determining the trajectory of biblical texts or literary texts, but it's also true in, in determining the direction and the trajectory of stories like floods in ancient cultures as well. And so, in other words, there are a lot of minefields here, uh, whether it's did the Epic of Gilgamesh influence the Bible uh, or the other way around. There's a lot of things that we just can't know, uh, and there's a lot of pitfalls that we need to avoid. So on, on that point, slightly mm -hmm. off topic, so we can do this quickly, but would you have any objection to the Bible being uh, after the Epic of Gilgamesh? Because I wouldn't necessarily, because I read Genesis as a corrective to the stories now being told by these ancient cultures, that yeah. God is coming into that and saying, look, you have this assumption of how the world came to be, and we need to fix it because you need to know who I am. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to make sense. But as you said, like it's, it's a minefield. That's only an impression. I can't prove that. And I'm not going to hang a lot of weight on it. But it also doesn't bother me if that's true. Um, quick reaction. What would you say to that? Yeah, to that I would say one of the big differences we see between the biblical account of the flood and other accounts is this concern for uh, for historical legitimacy. And by that mm -hmm. I mean, as you mentioned, the flood, uh, the ark rather, in the flood story is seaworthy, as opposed to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which clearly isn't, which seems to show yeah, that it's that a that cube. Has, right. You can go so look it up. It, it's hilarious. Yeah, so the Epic of Gilgamesh has an obvious mythical element to it that I think is missing in the Genesis mm -hmm. story. In fact, and this is where I put a lot of weight on the Toledot formula in Genesis 9, but especially the Toledot formula in Genesis 5. Why? Because it says this is the scroll of the generations of Adam. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know that there's any better way that the biblical author could be trying to clue us into uh, the fact that it's not only polemical in ter terms of pushing back against the ideologies of the time, but it was as historical as it could have been in terms of trying to document something that happened, even though I would totally grant that it was ultimately compiled or written later. Uh, but I, I think the, the textual indications are that it's supposed to be taken seriously in a way that these other texts really, in many ways, are not intended to be taken seriously. Um, in other words, uh, this yeah. is how I'll say it. The Epic of Gilgamesh, I don't think the author was writing that, trying to actually say this is the historical boat that was made, because that would be farcical. 
Uh, but I think he was he was pointing back to an event that really happened and writing it in what I would call a mythopoetic way, uh, but a way that the Bible does not treat the same subject. The Bible treats it as, to me, an historical event by the way that it describes it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very well put. Um, the basic challenge I, I want to put out there is that a mm -hmm. global flood— is of course possible, but begin we begin having to posit miracles or and you're right to point out that not all of the objections to the ark would require miraculous intervention. Mm -hmm. Um you bring up hibernation, that's still miraculous, but then solves, you know, numerous other issues. Mm -hmm. Um here is I don't know, my challenge why would we when we have a alternate reading of the text that mm -hmm. seems to do justice uh, to greater or lesser extent, uh, depending on how you want to see the connection to the creation, mm -hmm. um, to the text, to its meaning. Why do we have a presupposition that the more miraculous reading is the preferable one? Because to my mind, unless the Bible has made the claim that this is God acting in history in a miraculous way, apart from the judgment, because these would also have to be miracles curtailing the judgment. But that's not how the story is framed. The story is framed as a as an act of judgment. Mm -hmm. um, why would we assume that the the proliferation of miraculous events required is the preferable reading uh, when the Bible's never brings the story up, never highlights those, never says, "Look how good God is." Because, sorry, let me mm -hmm. give you one more reason why I think this is an important challenge. Mm -hmm. Because of the ancient Near Eastern parallels. In those stories, you have humanity escaping the wrath of gods, uh, mm -hmm. either through their own ingenuity or through the gods betraying one another because it's polytheism, baby. It's never a dull moment. Um, <laughs> but that's the point. If God saves Noah, and he most clearly does, but if he saves him through a global flood and we have all these other events about how he's preserving life, why are we not highlighting that? Why are we not shouting and screaming that from the roof? Because that would play into one of the central elements of the story, that this God is fundamentally different, that he cares about his creation. He remembered Noah and the animals, and he's gone to extraordinary lengths. Mm -hmm. So um, the omission of calling those things out makes me go, I don't see mm -hmm. a good reason to assume that they would be present then, uh, if I have any other viable uh, alternative reading. Does that make sense? So I'm going to <laughs> just going yeah, to throw yeah, that out I, there. How would I you respond to that? I think I understand what you're meaning. Um, and to that, I would say a couple things. I, I'm not willing to, uh, to concede the point that you have two alternative readings that are both equally convincing, so therefore, why wouldn't you choose the simpler one? Uh, I, I really do come back to the idea that uh, given the universal nature of sin, given the universal uh, nature of creation and the references that we see in Genesis 6 through 9, that uh, to me, the scales are tipped uh, interpretively speaking, towards seeing it as universal. So I, I don't think I'm willing to say, well, if you have this option and it's simpler uh, and it's just as plausible, then why not choose it? I, mm. To me, I just don't see it as uh, the same level of plausibility. Now, what I will say is, I think you're right in terms of the main point of the story being God's remembrance of Noah. 
Um, and so I, I, to me, I think it's, uh, I think it's a both and rather than an either or, right? I think you can highlight the main points of the story, which are God's faithfulness, God's remembrance, uh, God's establishment of Noah and his family is the one through whom his salvation is going to come. Uh, I think those are the main points, but I don't think that that in any way really weighs upon whether or not the story is global in nature or not. Um, so yeah, to me, I think uh, the best I can, I'm trying to to understand what the text is saying. Uh, mm-hmm. But I come back even to the the covenantal context, right? And and Brian, I will say, I think your point is is well made. That perhaps if we said, well, if it does include all humanity, then maybe the focus really isn't on the earth itself. It's really on God judging humanity and that judgment being complete. Perhaps that's a hybrid, the, you know, that's the kind of hybrid model that I would say is most plausible. Um, but at the same time, even the descriptions of the 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 actual nature of raining for 40 days, floodgates burst, the floodgates of the deep bursting open, uh, all of those combined with the other the other elements we've talked about, that just really does tip the scales to me to say, I just think that that's, that really is what the text is saying, at which point that's the direction I want to go. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I think that's what the text is saying as well. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'll just say as yeah. one last time, then we'll take a few more questions from chat. I come back to the question of what is the earth, even beyond just the land, but what is the earth to an ancient Near Eastern person? Yeah. Um, and we are still not at a globe. Um, yeah. and so even if I were to grant that, you know, Genesis one, we are talking about this more expansive sense than just the region in which Noah is in. Mm-hmm. It still seems to have to import modern sensibilities to get us all the way to the globe uh, as a like definitive reading it, yeah. rather than just a possible reading. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And it's interesting. Point. There's a lot to consider here, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Tim. No, fair point. And, and this is where, you know, as, as we consider these things, I come back to something that uh, is is unfortunately, I think, underestimated in a lot of people's minds, and it's it's the basic fact that we should not uh, it, we should not claim that something's convincing if it's not. Hmm. In, in other words, intellectual honesty compels yes. us to say, well, if I read the text this way and I'm convinced by it, then I need to say that out loud. Um, if the arguments aren't convincing, then they're not convincing, and also. Uh, along with that, the openness to say, well, if there are arguments that are presented before me uh, that really do have, uh, uh, you know, more weight to them, then I'm open to being convinced by better arguments. And so I appreciate your honesty, Brian, in saying, well, as I read this, as I compare the phraseology, as I think about both the theological categories, the literary categories, as well as just uh, how the story continues, I appreciate your honesty in saying, hey, I'm not sure that I'm convinced that this is absolutely necessary, even though you would say, of course, it's possible that God did it. Um, mm-hmm. If he created all thing, uh, things out of nothing, a global flood really is relatively small. Um, but I, I will just throw this out there. Uh, I've I've been familiar with arguments uh, about all the earth not necessarily being global in scope. Uh, but what struck me is the, the phrase, uh, every creature under heaven. And so, uh, do you do you happen to know off the top of your head? You quoted Doctor Heiser with this. Does he address that issue as well, Brian? I know you mentioned it, um, but does uh, he mention he, that? 
he does and I omitted that. So uh, listeners, mm-hmm. if you go Google for Dr. Michael Heiser, local region theory, and by the way, Dr. Heiser, I don't think believes in a local flood either. He's pointing out though what the text supports um, and memory tells me that he did have a section on under heaven does yeah. not mean uh, across the globe. It again is contextual to the story at yeah. hand, but I don't have those Bible verses in front of me. So my well, mistake and, on omitting that. Yeah. Um, and he, but he, yeah, that'd be a good thing to search out. And and that's what I've noticed in his work, you know, for the many disagreements I would likely have with Dr. Heiser, uh, his, his treatment of the language and, and especially the grammar is almost always, uh, is almost always compelling. Top so, notch, yeah. Uh, he's he's very good. So, Dr. Brian, yeah. do we want to look at chat maybe before we uh, wrap up here? See if there's anything we want to uh, go after there, and uh, then yeah, maybe wh- come with some final comments. Wh- why don't you look at chat as I uh, make one last point? Because I sure. it occurred to me I did not say it. So, listeners, as I'm considering this view, right? And I said even at the outset, this isn't a view I necessarily adopt. It's one I'm considering. Um, I really appreciate some of the pushback because I think Tim has given. Uh, some very strong objections that I had not heard before. And so that's very helpful. I'm going to go away and you know keep thinking about this. One thing I want to highlight out there is that we should not be seeking to accommodate our interpretation mm-hmm. to modern assumptions, or I should say current assumptions, of how things have to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a maxim I've always taken quite seriously that if you wed yourself to the philosophy or ideas of the day, you'll be a widow in the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are driven to this type of interpretation because you go, I have to accommodate X, Y, or Z, I'm going to say that that's probably not a good basis for interpretation of the text. Figure out first what the text says, and then figure out how do I right, work with this in our current understanding, knowing that our fallibility means I may be understanding the text wrong. I may be understanding science wrong. I may be understanding my culture wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, my argument as I've tried to present it tonight has not sought to deal with like uh, geological evidence, fossil evidence, anything like that, because yeah. those aren't my fields. And I would have no idea if the point I'm making is good or not. And yet I see a lot of debates go to that point. Stick mm-hmm. with the text. Let's deal with what is in there, what's not in there, and try to figure out what the best reading is. So I just kind of want to leave it with that. That's not uh, the impetus behind me driving for this view. That's not the impetus behind many people driving for this view. Um, so let's try to stick with what's in the text. So uh, Tim, we've had a fairly active chat tonight. Uh, any questions we should address before we move to kind of some wrap up? Yeah. So Jacob brought up a question, uh, basically saying maybe Noah was covenant head and punished through the loss of humanity and civilization. And, uh, and that opens a a huge can of worms as we think about what it means to be a covenant head and how that would relate. Uh, but Jacob to that, I would, I would simply say, as we think about Noah in, in essence, we know he is to some degree a covenant head, uh, in, in this sense, that God makes a covenant with Noah and his sons, meaning that that covenant is then uh, in effect for all humanity after them. And as I mentioned, what's what's often overlooked is that it's not only a covenant with Noah and his sons, it's actually a covenant with the earth as well. So the earth is kind of personified, uh, even in the text of, of Genesis 9, we see that, by the way, in various ways, all the way back in Genesis 4, right? The earth or the land is crying out, uh, the blood of your brother. Uh, we see that the land is defiled. So this land, I'm not saying the Bible says the land is alive, it's a figure of speech. But here's the point. 
Noah, in a sense, acts as a stand-in for all of humanity. The covenant that God makes with him and his sons is in effect for all of humanity. Uh, but uh, in, And maybe that could serve to, to bolster Brian's point that if Noah serves as a covenant head, then perhaps it's, it's not necessary to see every single human being involved. Uh, but again, I, see, I tend to see that as the reason why he makes the covenant with Noah is because Noah and his sons are the only humans left, and therefore, de facto, they have to be the ones that he makes the covenant with. Uh, yeah, so there's I no don't, one left I don't, do. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I would, I would answer that, Brian. What What would you say? Yeah, no. So initially I was like, no, 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 no. The, the covenant's made at the end of the flood narrative. Um, the way you could possibly argue this, Jacob, and so if we're wanting to say so humanity is already dispersed, which I'm not saying, but if you want to say that, and that it is still only regional and it's okay, um, I think you'd have to assume there is a covenant with creation that Adam was the covenant head and that passed mm. through his line. So it is the line of Seth. So whoever the head of that family is would be the covenant head. Um, and in that case, you do have this interesting thing that it is Noah is the only one saved. The rest of the family is destroyed. Uh, mm-hmm. And the rest of any of, you know, kinsfolk people that they lived amongst. Maybe you could go an argument that way. Uh, Tim, to your point in a conversation we had quite a while ago about the Nephilim, if the sons of God refers to the Sethite line, that maybe actually strengthens that, that they are in yeah. covenant relationship with God. Um, this is just, I, I'm kind of thinking off the cuff. That's how you could argue it. I don't know if yeah. I'd want to argue it that way, but you maybe could. Yeah. It all comes back to the Nephilim, Brian, doesn't it? Oh, so. maybe. Yeah. How did they survive? And anyway, no. That, yeah. That's also, by the way, listeners, one of the reasons why some people argue for a local flood, because the Nephilim show up again later in the Bible. How <laughs> could they if they were destroyed, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Well, Brian, any final thoughts before we sign off tonight and uh, in our CounterPoint series? Any final thoughts? Yeah, well, this has been a fantastic end, and we've gone kind of long, so thank you for sticking with us, listeners. But I... This is what I have loved about the series, Tim, is being able to have good faith and safe debates about the text. Um, Listeners, one of my hopes is that you would find that in your own life, those people, your pastor, your Bible study leader, whomever it is, but people with whom you can have honest conversations. I think sometimes in the church, we can be so concerned with appearance that we're afraid to ask what we really want to know. Uh, And it's always been my assumption, and Tim, I think it's your assumption that, you know, God's big enough to handle tough questions. All truth belongs to God at the end of the day, so pursuing truth is never a bad thing. Um, And so I've loved to really hammer out some of these points over these last 10 CounterPoint episodes. Um, and, and Tim, both you and I went into this and we're like, we're not keeping score. Uh, that's, it's not that type of debate because we're seeking truth rather than seeking to win. Um, but I've kind of reflected back on the series and, and listeners maybe as encouragement to you that none of us are ever finished. We're always in process. We're always learning. Um, I go back and, you know, on the basis of things Tim have said, uh, when we talked about the historicity of Jonah and Job, I think Tim mm. actually brought up some good points. Uh, and I'm leaning in that episode, I was kind of like, I don't know if Job is historical. I'm a little bit more on board that, you know what, this is maybe a story of a historical figure. There's artistry in it, of course, but uh, I think we have some good elements that would point out that, no, this seems to be a story of a real person in real space and time. Um, And one of the big changes I've come away with is the naming of Eve. Mm. I'm still 
very puzzled. And I think there's something going on with the fact that the naming of her when Adam talks, it's different than every other naming convention to that point. That seems significant, mm. but I am much less sure that the naming of her post fall is a negative. In fact, I'm pretty much pulled off that point. I still mm. don't know what two is doing. Two is really <laughs> weird. Um, but uh, so just that to show like, hey, we're people who study the text a lot and we're still <laughs> changing our views, changing our ideas as we seek after God. So if you ever feel like I don't have all the answers, none of us have all the answers. That's the yeah. beauty of our study. We're pushing for more day by day. So those are kind of my thoughts, Tim, on tonight, on the series. Why don't you bring us on home? Yeah, well, I love it, Brian. You know, we we talked uh, earlier about uh, just this idea that as as we consider these things, we're always in a process of growth. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that that Old Testament studies often highlight is the importance of covenant. And as I've said many times, I, I had kind of a stake in the ground to say there is no covenant in Genesis 2. It's, it's before sin, and therefore covenantal language is illegitimate. It imports a sinful category into a sinless world. And uh, I, am, I am not to the point where I would say I have taken the flag out and burned it, but I'm at least taking it out of its hole and considering what to do with it. And so it's, it's something where uh, I, I'm much less convinced that the covenantal language is somehow a sinful importation, uh, at which point, Brian, you have uh, made some great points. And even tonight, right, the idea of God remembering, that is covenantal language, and I have to somehow account for how that covenantal language is there if God has not yet made a covenant. Um, so there are many things, and some of them may be in some sense small, uh, but in another way, this is this is— this is part of what it means to me, Brian, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, when we think of meditating on the law of God, uh, it's, it's meditation, yes, in the most practical everyday matters of my daily walk with the Lord. That's so important. But also sometimes it's just mulling things over and allowing our minds to be uh, shaped and, and shifted and, uh, and allowing the text to mold us. And, uh, and this is something that, of course, is valuable in its own right. Uh, but also it's it's even more valuable whenever you're able to do it with someone that uh, is seeking honest answers to honest questions as well. So, Dr. Brian, I've cherished it. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, Dr. Brian, uh, I know you would echo the same sentiment. Thank you so much to our listeners. We love doing this with each other, uh, but it's that much more valuable whenever you're involved, uh, both by giving us your questions live or sending us questions online. Uh it's, it's a great adventure. And as Dr. Brian said a year ago, this was just a thought. Uh, and now to have done three seasons and uh, to have answered a lot of questions and be able to engage with the text, it truly is a blessing. So Dr. Brian, any final word before I sign us out? Well, listeners, I hope you uh, stay with us in the next couple of weeks. We have two interviews coming up. Next week, we're bringing back Dr. Christian Wilder, who was on with me for a discussion of the Second Temple. Uh, The week after that, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Russell Meek on some of his latest work on Ecclesiastes. It's going to be fantastic. And then we'll have a year-end review where we'll answer some questions and talk about next year, because there's some great things coming up in 2024. So excited for these next (laughs) couple of weeks and excited to end out this year with you, Tim. Awesome. Well... Thank you, Dr. Brian, and, uh, and we just praise the Lord and, and thank him for his blessing 
as we uh, look toward 2024. We hope that you make plans to join us as well. Share us with your friends. Uh, let people know about what we're doing. And, uh, and hopefully we're going to build more appreciation for God's word and especially the Old Testament in the days and months ahead. Hey, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And as always, stay cool and stay old. Hey, everyone. 